Well, this morning, as I was, um, as I've been meditating on what God wants to have me speak to you guys about, we're going to be looking at a particular psalm. And I would ask you, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and get it out and turn to Psalm number three. We're not going to read through it just yet. And I just broke the rule of public speaking because I now gave you something to play with and look at while I'm trying to talk with you. But uh, that's okay. If, if you need to do that, feel free. But we will be looking at, at Psalm 3 first. I mean, as we go about this morning. But before we look at Psalm 3, you need to know a little bit about what prompted the writing of Psalm 3. And even before that, let me tell you a little story. My wife and I, we're, we're uh, living in the Philippines from 1984 until 1987. I was stationed at Clark Air Base. I was in the Air Force. It was Halloween time. And the base had decided to have a fundraising event. They called it the Haunted Trail. And so what they did was they literally cut a trail in the jungle on one section of land in the base, and they set up haunted house stations, like as if it was in a haunted house, only it was on the trail. And the storyline was that this was a trail that had been used during World War II, and all of the ghosts of the departed people uh, were still haunting that trail. Well, when you got out of your car at the parking lot, you then had to stand in line at a gate and as you passed through the gate, you would get onto a, a, a hayride, basically, that was drawn by a big tractor and this big flatbed trailer that had a, all these hay bales. And you'd sit on that while they took you a good five to ten minute ride down to the trail, to the haunted trail. While they're doing that, they're telling you ghost stories and making you scared. And it's, it's already starting to be twilight and dark. And by the time we got to the trail, it was already dark. And we're carrying lanterns and flashlights. We're walking this trail out in the jungle in the Philippines. And at one point, I mean, it's it's a haunted thing. And you know you're there to be scared. So you're like, oh, oh it scared me. Oh, it scared me. Oh, it scared me. But at one point, we're in this big clearing area, probably as big as this space here in, in front of the pews. And the guide who was walking this group of six or seven people through the trail he was trying, there were two rounded graves with headstones. And they were covered with leaves and, and debris from the, from the jungle. And he was trying to get us to stand near one as he's telling this story about the person that had died and was buried here. And I was like, oh, buddy, you ain't getting me to stand near that. Because I know what's going to happen. As soon as you get me near that grave, somebody's going to jump out and grab my feet. There's no way. So I backed up. And I stood next to the other grave while he was telling his story. Lo and behold, the ghost jumped up from the grave I was next to and grabbed my ankles. At that moment, I screamed like a little girl. And I ran. And when I ran, I literally ran face to face into Count Dracula, who was coming out from an area in the trees. And so literally... This is what happened. Well, no. And then after that, I bounced off of him and turned around, and there was Frankenstein on the other side of me. 
And again, I scream. So this is what's happening. He's trying to guide us here. And I'm like, <laughs> nobody, nobody. in a white hot panic freaked out it was so bad Dracula was laughing <laughs> I was so afraid and I had lost it I had no control over myself at all in that moment except that finally my wife grabbed me and it's okay it's okay, it's okay. but literally scream turn run scream the fight or flight fight or flight fight or flight and I was on the way out I needed to get away from all this scared the daylights out of me well as it happens I had that happen to me once before when I was a kid we were being babysat when my parents were out we were in the living room now our house was a house that had a full basement and the full basement uh, had some daylight windows in the basement so in order to get to the front door you had to go up three steps to the stoop then you went in the front door so our, our the bottom of our windows on our living room on the first floor were a good eight to ten feet up from the ground you couldn't stand on the grass in the, in the front lawn and put your face up against the window. You couldn't because it was too high up. So this evening, my mom and dad are gone. The next door neighbor girl is 16 years old. She's babysitting us. I think I was maybe eight. And then there was seven and six and five. And, you know, there was like five or six of us kids. And so she turns off all the lights in the living room. And she lights a candle. And she's telling us a ghost story. And I had said at the beginning of her telling all these scary things, wouldn't it be freaky if we looked over and saw somebody looking in the window at us? And she said, that's not possible, Bob. And then she continued to tell the story. Well, I didn't know it and she didn't know it. But her 14-year-old brother decided to scare her. So he got his buddy and him to come over to the house and he climbed up on his friend's shoulders and got up in the window and was looking through the window and he had a scruffy beard face so here's this dark long hair big black eyebrows wide eyes and this bearded face looking in our window and I was the first one to see him she's in the middle of telling a scary story with just a candle on and I look over and I jump up scream she turns and sees him and screams and when it's all said and done I literally have to go change my pants and clean the puddle off the floor. It was that bad. It was that bad. So twice in my life, I had been that white hot scared to where I didn't know where I was at. I didn't know what to do. I lost control, literally. And I was freaked out. I tell you all of that to tell you this. Let's read Psalm uh, number three. And then we'll talk about the history of it. Psalm number three. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. 
But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay awake, excuse me, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Now, if you go back to the top of this passage, this Psalm 3, in many, many Bibles, you will see a, a, a a script that is not considered a verse, but it is kind of a... Uh, instruction to the people who are the readers of this. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, Absalom, his son. Now, we're, some of us are probably very familiar with the story. Some of us have probably never heard the story. So let me give you a short, short synopsis of what happened with Absalom and his son. Because literally, it goes from 2 Samuel chapter 13 all the way through to 2 Samuel chapter 19. We do not have time this morning to read six chapters in 2 Samuel. So I'm going to bring it all down to just a few minutes of discussion, and then we'll come back to Psalm number 3. If you remember um, when... Uh, start again. If you remember, uh, David had more than one wife. David um, had a number of wives, and as a result, he had a number of children. The very first child, the very first son he ever had was a guy named Amnon. Then he had a second son, which I don't have the name in front of me, and I couldn't remember it if I wanted to. But I do know that that second son was the son of David and Abigail, who had been married um, to that really churlish man. Remember uh, Nate? Nahum, not Nahum, Nabal. Nabal, thank you. My brain wasn't working. So the second child that, the second son that David had was Nabal's, uh, was, was Abigail's son. Then the third son that he had was Absalom. So Absalom was not the crown prince. Absalom was just one of the princes in the household. King David had Amnon as his son. Then there were other girls that were born, but they aren't named in the Bible because, you know, they're not important. But there is one girl that's named, and her name is Tamar. And Tamar, was a, we're told in the Bible, she's a very beautiful woman. She's a very lovely woman. And Amnon had the hots for her, even though she was his sister. But think about it. She was his sister from another mother, because David had multiple wives. So it was a half-sister. And back then, they didn't get all freaked out about intermarriage like we do now. So Amnon wanted to have Tamar as his bride. He pined for her. He longed for her. He he fretted over not having access to her. He needed to have her in his life. And it got feverish with him. And finally, he literally tricks Tamar into coming into his bedroom, supposedly coming to take care of him in his illness. And then in what ends up happening is he literally grabs her and rapes her. And the Bible says, no sooner was he done with the act than his love for her was turned to hatred and he cast her out. 
shaming her, having bespoiled her, and now she's like, whoa! And so the Bible says that Tamar, who was wearing a, a princess's robe, she covered her head in dust, she tore her robes, and she went to her brother Absalom. And she said, and he was like, he did what? Come into my household. But he doesn't do anything. Two years pass. And Amnon has gotten away with this. And then one day, Absalom comes to his father, David, and he says, I want to go and honor God and worship. <coughs> and I want, to, I want you to come. And David says, I can't go. And he said, well, then can, can you let your son Amnon come? Sure, he can go. So Amnon comes to represent the family at this big thing. And while they're there, Absalom has his men kill Amnon. David, when he hears about it, casts Amnon out. Says, you're banished. You have to leave. And for a number of years, I think it is, I I, I got my numbers wrong, so it might be two years, it might be four years. You'd have to go back and look. Um, He's banished from Jerusalem. And David is sick at heart because he loved his son. He was so much missing his son, but he couldn't bring him back because he was banished because of murdering his brother Amnon. The Bible says at some point, David got to the point where he was reconciled with his grief over Amnon. He was no longer in devastating grief. He was okay and at peace with the fact that his son Amnon was dead, but he still was not going to be reconciled with Absalom. And Joab, the leader of David's armies, saw the twisted, conflicted way that David was living. And so Joab brought about through manipulation a situation where David was confronted with the fact that he was being conflicted and that he needed to make a change and he needed to welcome Absalom back. And so <coughs> so um, <coughs> David says to Joab, go ahead and tell him he can come back, but he can't see my face. So Absalom moves back to Jerusalem. He's now back with his family. He's now back with his people. He's now back with his his community. But he still does not have access to his father. His father refuses to let him see him. And what ends up happening is it begins to sour Absalom's heart towards his father and towards all everything about David. And then at some point, <clears throat> Absalom comes back to his father falls at his feet and it says that David kissed Absalom. Now the Bible doesn't say this, but if you read commentary about it, you will read commentary after commentary that says that kiss was too little too late because Absalom had already been harmed by the rejection that he received from his father. And as a result, his heart was still hardened against David and that's what ended up in, the, in, in Absalom rebelling against his father a number of years later and literally rallying most of the support of the nation of Israel to himself. It got to the point where literally Absalom has himself declared king, even though it's not real, but he convinces his father through circumstances that the people of Israel have decided that Absalom needs to be king to the point where David and his household, all of his all of his wives, all of his household, everybody pick up, including the tabernacle, including the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant, and they're leaving Jerusalem to go to safety on the other side of the river. And then through a lot of circumstances, Abs- I mean, uh, David leaves behind 10 concubines to take care of the household, to take care of the palace. He leaves behind a few 
trusted people who are going to act as, act, act as spies in, in Absalom's uh, presence to try and bring word back to David. And then the end result is, through a lot of things that happen back and forth, finally there's a battle and Absalom is killed and David is just grief-stricken to the point where he's, he's like, my son, my son, Absalom, my son, I wish I had died. And literally it says that the, the, the warriors of Israel come back as if with their tails between their legs instead of as victorious warriors, they come back with their tails between their legs because of the way that David is acting. And then finally Joab says, get up, get it up, start acting right. You're harming your people and you're losing them. And so David finally cleans himself up comes and sits on the throne and thanks the people for what they did and life goes on. Now, that's a really truncated version of the story. You can go and read it. Like I said, it's 2 Samuel chapter 13 all the way through to 19. Um, But if you go back to Psalm chapter 3, that very first line, that's not even a verse of the the psalm. It's just a, a sentence that's there. It is in the text. It's something that you'll find in all the Bibles, but it's not considered a verse. It's an instruction to the people who are reading it. And it says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So what this tells us is that this psalm, scholars believe, was written by King David. Now, there is nothing in the scripture that tells us that he actually wrote it while he was fleeing from Absalom, or if he wrote it as a result of that event, while he was looking back and reflecting. It doesn't make any difference. The bottom line is, the motivation for these words were when David was literally in a white-hot panic, running for his life with him and his household, believing that he had enemies, thousands upon thousands of enemies, most of the nation of Israel and Judah, well, at that time, we're all Israel. Most of the nation of Israel who were after his head and those of his children because Absalom had risen to power. And so if we now look at the words that David wrote with that understanding, that literal freak out, don't know where to turn, scared to death for yourself and all of your people, literally to the point of almost wetting yourself, you're that freaked out. These are the words that he wrote. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. (coughs) But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. 
The first two verses that we read are David giving us an indication of the situation he finds himself in. Thousands, literally thousands, are amassing against him. If you go back and read the story in 2 Samuel, there comes a point where one of those spies that is, it's one of the spies that's working for Absalom, but is actually working on David's behalf, he gives counter advice when Absalom says, what should we do? Should we go and attack my father now? And one of the advisors says, yes, by by all means, go now, get him while he's weak, get him while he's not prepared. That way you can destroy him and you can have the whole nation. And this other advisor said, no, 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 don't do that. Wait until you can get all of the army of of Israel to join you, the thousands of Israel to join you. That way you'll overwhelm him no matter how good or not prepared he is. And so Absalom listens to the advice of the second advisor who is working for David And so he sends off notice to everyone in in Israel, send your fighting men. We're going to take and kill David and and, and get rid of this, this blight from amongst us. So while they're waiting for that crew of people to show up, this spy for David sends word to David and says, get on the other side of the river. They're sending an army ahead of you. Get over there. Get yourself into the cave. Get yourself fortified because the enemy is coming. So David is able to adequately prepare and to be ready for this onslaught. So that's where we're at at this point. Is David is saying, we're hiding, we're prepared as best we can. But oh my word, oh my word, Absalom has raised literally thousands of people. And I don't know how we're going to get through this. I don't see any way that we're going to get through this. And then he says, but you, oh Lord... Are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I read a line in one of the commentators that said, The hypnotic focus on the enemies was broken in verse 3 when David turned his eyes to the Lord. As he was focused on his enemies and his situation and all he saw was death and destruction and harm and and, and no hope. He couldn't get past it. All he could do was wring his hands and worry and fret. There was nothing he could do. He was trapped. There was no way he could go against what was coming up. He was lost. As soon as his gaze changed and he looked up to God. And it's that idea, that idea of that hypnotizing focus on the enemy. Cause it's like when something is really bad that you're feeling overwhelmed by, that you don't feel like you can control, it's as if your every waking moment is totally consumed with worry, anxiety, and fear over whatever that is. Whether it is cancer. Whether it is a broken relationship, whether it is financial problems, whether it is homelessness, unemployment, illness, whatever the case may be, if it is something that is beyond your control, it is, it is very likely that you as a human being will find yourself completely focused on that. 
And as the commentator said, it is a hypnotizing focus. It's as if it's sucking you in and there's nothing you can do to get away from it. And it's producing anxiety and concern and worry. And all you're doing is getting sucked into this vortex. But if you can just raise your gaze up to the, to the heavens and glimpse the Father who is your source, who is, as David said, your shield, your glory, and the lifter of your head. What does the lifter of your head mean? It means someone who picks you up. In some cases, scholars say that this could be that he's putting, he's a promise to put him back in his position of authority. It simply could mean that you, that the Lord comes down and he says, my child, and turns the child, the child's head forward, upward, so that there can be an eye to eye gaze. I mean, you've been there, either as a parent or an adult in a child's life. The child is just, and you say, look at me. Look at me. And you take them by the cheeks and you gently turn their head up and you say, look at me. I've got this. It's okay. You don't have to be afraid. It's okay. Something about that eye-to-eye connection breaks the anxiety and the fear. And so David himself is, is giving us in these words this demonstration of, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, what am I going to do? Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. As if the Holy Spirit of God reaches down and turns his head upward and says, look me in the eye. I've got this. And that hypnotizing focus on the dark, that vortex that's sucking him down further and further into despair, is broken as soon as the contact with the as the eye contact is changed. And the Holy Spirit of God says, Do you trust me? And David's words in this verse are <laughs> Yeah, I do. Because not only do I trust you, but I recognize you as a shield around me. Now I I meditated on that. I can't in my human human mind from my from my physical perspective, I can't understand how a shield can go completely around me. I mean, in my mind, and this wouldn't have been in 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 you know what he was trying to get because he was talking about from a from a, an army perspective. But what I see is he in some kind of a concrete bunker, completely surrounded by something that's impenetrable. God has put him in a situation where God completely surrounds him, and David acknowledges. You are my shield that is about me. You are my glory. And the lifter of my head. And then the other part of this. I cried to him. He answered. I prayed. He heard. Because he responded. And then this is incredibly powerful. Verse 5. In that moment of despair but now focused on God in my exhaustion in my not knowing where to turn when I finally got it onto God I was able to just lay down and go to sleep and it literally says when I woke and I woke up okay so what he's saying there is God got a hold of my attention Broke that hypnotizing focus of that darkness that was trying to envelop me. God gave me confidence that he's got me. He's got me surrounded with a protective shield. He is my glory. He is 
taking me and, and maybe going a promise of restoring me. But either way, God has got me. I was able to go to sleep that night. Not only did I sleep, but I woke up in the morning. And when I did, I realized that he sustained me through the night. Even when I wasn't conscious and able to be on guard watching, God took care of me. God protected me and my house. And the very first response after that, I will not be afraid. Even though thousands have set themselves against me, I will not be afraid. And the prayer of David in verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. And this is, this is interesting because I didn't like these words when I first read them. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. And I'm like, that's nasty. I don't want to talk about that. But one of the scholars that I was reading said, imagine this. What he's saying is striking them on the cheek was an offense that caused the, the enemy to lose face. Now, that's not part of our culture. We don't fully understand what that means. But in the Middle East, if you cause someone to lose face, you have humiliated them. That is one of the worst things you could ever do to another person. So God strikes them across the cheek to say, leave my child alone. I'm I'm putting you down. I'm humiliating you. I'm in, I am causing you embarrassment in your public in the public's eye and with your people. And then he says, "And I'm breaking the teeth in your mouth." And one of the scholars said, "Think about this. What were they doing to David? They were speaking evil to him. Your God doesn't have enough strength to you. We are going to take over. We're going to kill you and all of your people." And God broke the power. That was in their mouth. If you come up to it, one of the scholars said that if you come up to a wolf or an animal that has sharp teeth and that's how they kill and, steal and devour, you break out their teeth and all that's left is broken teeth and gums, they have no more power. And so it's not literally breaking the teeth out of the enemies of God, uh, of David, it's God breaking the dark, evil power of their words and their actions. Again, God has got me. God is protecting me. God is sustaining me. God will bring me back to a position of where I was before. And during that whole process, God is going to knock out my enemies and destroy their power. And then finally, salvation belongs or comes from the Lord. Victory comes from the Lord. May your blessing be on your people, O oh God. Something I didn't know when I was studying, when I was before I started studying this, but when I started studying this, I learned that in, in Jewish culture, Psalm 3 is a morning prayer. When they wake up, this is what they use to pray to God. You brought me through the night. You took care of me. And I will continue to keep my eyes focused on you and not the darkness around me. I will keep my focus. Because when you wake up in the morning, if you have something that's been oppressing you, what is the first thought in your head? That report that's due, that bill that's due, that illness that won't go away, that sickness. Or is it God? 
If you focus, if you, and if you can't break that, because that hypnotizing vortex is sucking you into the darkness, then allow the Holy Spirit of God to turn your head up, to gaze face to face, eye to eye with God. That's what David is talking about here. One last thing, and then we're going to go to our time of communion. One of the commentators I read said, now let's move it back, let's move it forward about 4,000 years. Go to a garden in Gethsemane. Jesus is sitting there with his friends saying, would you please pray with me? I'm about to face the worst, most horrible thing I could ever do. And his friends even abandoned him because they were just so tired they couldn't. And Jesus, the hypnotizing focus of the dark evil vortex was trying to suck him down to destroy him, to destroy his nerve and his willingness to submit to the will of the Father. And Jesus kept having to say, God, please, God, please, God, please. And it's as if the Holy Spirit of God, the the Father, lifted up Jesus' own face and said, Son, I got this. You know we've got this. I know it's not going to be easy. I know it's going to be painful, but we've got this. And finally, Jesus was sustained enough. The Holy Spirit of God filled Jesus and ministered to him. In the book of Luke, it says that angels came and ministered to Jesus. And then Judas came and kissed him on the cheek. The act of a friend, the act of a brother, which brought death and destruction. But he was able to face it because he had taken his eyes off the dark vortex and put his face fully on the Father who was his shield, who was his glory, who was the lifter of his head. So our challenge this morning is for us. What do these words mean to us? How is this important to me? Well, I think it goes without saying. If you're facing something, if you're struggling with something, if you're anxious over something, so often it's easy to hear the words, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But the reality is... You turn and you see Dracula. You turn and you see Frankenstein. You turn and you see the grave before you, grabbing at your feet. There's no place where you can find safety until you turn your eyes up. Regardless of what's going on around you, you turn your eyes up and you look from which, look to him from which your salvation comes, to where your victory comes, to where your, your peace comes. He is the shield that is all around you. And he is the lifter of your head. Let's pray.